1: Well, good morning, North Canton Chapel family, it's good to see you. Um, It's already been a great morning and it's only going to get better because we're going to get under the written word so that we can meet with the incarnate word, Jesus, and so I'm excited about that, Um, but before we go any further, I want to just take a few seconds and just say thank you. Um, These have been super tough days for everybody in our world and um, they're still tough for, for many in our world. And so. As we, as a church, have tried to navigate some of those changes and some of those decisions that have been made, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your patience um, as we kind of process through some of these things. Um, thank you for your faithfulness, like watching, engaging, giving, participating online. It's so good to see so many of you making comments and, and, and things like that. Thank you, too, just for, for choosing to trust us as, as we lead you. Um, really, from us as a staff to you, um, that means a lot. It's an honor to lead you as your staff. and so. Just want to say thanks. So um, that's a different start to a sermon this morning. So uh, before we turn our attention to the Word, um, we're going to do it a little bit differently. There's no like story to start. There's no you know kind of questions or anything like that. Um, What I want to do is I just want to dive right in uh, to the book of James. There's no better place to start than that. So here we go James chapter 1 and uh, we're going to start in verse 12. So just let me read it and uh, you can follow along with me. Here's what he says. James chapter 1. then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown gives forth or brings forth death do not be deceived my beloved brothers every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, so that's where we're headed this morning, and I'm really super excited about how God's going to unfold His word for us. So, you've been there though, haven't you? Uh, we're talking about temptation this morning, and you've felt that the weight of temptation and the wake of temptation. These like facepalm moments, right, where you just go, "Ah, oh, why did I do that? Like, what was I thinking? How could I be so foolish? Well, how did I miss this big thing? How could I be so stupid?" Isn't it crazy how regret and mistakes and guilt can be so overwhelming? This profound fear of failure. Well, this is week two of our series in the book of James. And we started off last week by saying that James says these really practical things to those who want to live a life with Jesus. And last week, we looked at three problems that James talks about. The suffering problem, the stability problem, and the social problem. And we said that if the book of James is like walking a trail, that these are likely to be the first three problems that you're going to find in your journey with Jesus. Suffering. We said that it brings us perseverance if we have the courage to look at it until we see it. Stability. It comes from wisdom, and all we have to do is ask God for it, and he'll give it to us. And social. Everyone is beautifully, wonderfully significant because they are an image bearer of God. Well, this morning we're taking another length of trail together. And I want you to imagine that James has brought us to something of like a fork in the road. and We look down one end, and this is the path that is fairly well trod, and there are warning signs maybe along the side of this path. The second way looks less familiar, less intimidating, but oddly also less travel. So a quick Bible study tip for you, especially for those of you who are new to reading your Bible. Whenever you're trying to understand a certain portion of scripture, there's two questions that you need to ask, and here they are. What is this text talking about, and then what is it saying about what it's talking about? And usually the first one is like one word, maybe two words. In this case, where we're going to be this morning, James is talking about how to conquer temptation in the Christian life. He's talking about temptation, but what he's saying about that is much different than you may have been taught. See, most of us, regardless of what church tradition you come from, we may have sort of thought that the way to conquer temptation is to do something, like, I got to try harder, I got to pray more, I got to get more involved, I need to whatever. And I think that before we really understand the nature of temptation and understand how to deal with it and how to see victory over these areas in our lives, we need to make a pretty substantial mind shift. And here it is. The good news that James wants to show us this morning is that conquering temptation isn't about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. Conquering temptation is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And so last week we left off at verse 11. So let's get right back in verse 12. Um, this sort of functions like a hinge for where James was and where he wants to take us. And so he says it. He just says, Bless is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Suffering. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then he jumps right into temptation. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth Death. Now, James does one thing we want to understand right away. He acquits God and he implicates me. That's not great news. That's a little sour to kind of sit with right up front. But when we're talking about temptation, in verse 13, he says, when you're having those face palm moments, when you go, ah, oh, why did I do that? Why did I veer off the trail? Why did I make that mistake? Why did I pick that thing up again? James is very careful to say, don't you ever rush to blame God. Don't ever think that God is somehow to blame for your temptation. And he's saying that because of what he said earlier last week. God will bring suffering into your life so that we can learn from it. He will never bring sin into our lives because that's not his character. That's not what he does. Whatever the source of your temptation whether it's my rebellious nature, like my stupid choices, these odd addictions that show up in my life, these selfishness, this self-centeredness. We all have the human tendency to blame shift. Thank you, Adam and Eve, for showing us how that works. James says, look, if you're going to blame shift, don't blame God. This is not his deal. God is never the author of my sin. That's on me. So I'm going to give you an illustration of how uh, this works in my life, so follow me. Since January, I've tried to do a little bit better job about watching what I eat. I know a lot of us are kind of doing the same thing. This is sort of a common New Year's resolution, and um, you know the odd thing is that during these COVID-19 days, where we're working from home or you know we're stress eating, I think I think it's harder than ever to actually watch what we eat and be aware of it. Right? Emotional eating is a more culturally you know identifiable practice right now. So here's how this shows up in the Marshall House these days. Mandy and I have three kids, Joseph, Karsten, and Hannah. Joseph and Karsten, 14 and 12. They're entering that stage where they eat. Like a lot. Right? And like we'll have dinner. And then like 15 minutes later, it's dad, I'm hungry. Oh, man. Okay. And then like, you know, we'll we'll go to bed. Like we'll, you know, we'll head upstairs, we'll do some some scripture together, we'll pray together, we'll talk, lights out. Oh, I need to go downstairs and get something to eat, right? And this is just the stage that we're in. And I remember it well enough myself. I remember being like 15 years old and my mom would go to Sam's Club and she would buy these like boxes of Italian sausages. And I would come home from school and I would fire up the grill. I'd eat like three of those things and then be hungry for dinner two hours later. And so I'd, some of you know this stage of parenting and you're in there with us. But this is where we are. Now here's where things get tough. Nothing undermines my health pursuit as a 39-year-old dad than an open bag of chips on the counter, and you're the exact same way. Don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. You see them there, and if it's like salty, crunchy, and available, it's like, oh, I can't resist, right? And it's just there. It's one thing if they're like tucked in the pantry, like all put away and folded, like under a chip clip behind a closed door, but they're never tucked away because I have teenagers at my house. They're always on the counter, and the chips are open, and they're like, they're there, and they're saying, come on, please, we're here. We're open for you. We're available. They're always there. They're lonely all by themselves saying, come on. And I don't want to dishonor the chips, right? Because somebody has thoughtfully left them open and available. They're right there for me. And so I need to honor their thoughtfulness, right? This is how it works in my head. And like the biggest joke of all of those chip bags, especially those like kettle cooked chips, um, forget what the, the brand is, but those kettle cooked chips that are like everywhere now, some of you probably have some on your lap right now, because you know exactly what I'm, the biggest joke about those things, have you ever looked at the serving size? It's like 13 chips. Who eats 13 chips? Nobody, more like 13 handfuls of chips, right? And you just go one after the other. I can stop anytime I want, I promise I'm only going to have one. This is the deception that I live under. Now, I know that's a stupid, trite, silly illustration for how temptation works. So let's get more serious for a second. I want to put a magnifying glass over this idea of temptation because it's something that everybody listening right now deals with. I don't care if you're 9 or 90, temptation is a part of your life. And the catch is that when temptation comes in all of its nuanced forms, dealing with it, at least from a preaching position here on, on a Sunday morning, this can be a really challenge, kind of, how do we talk about it? Because it's such a non-issue and it's so individualized. And that's part of the kind of the insidiousness of how sin works is it's so specific to who I am. And so for a little bit, I want to be general enough now to be relevant to everyone, but specific and helpful enough um, to, to be helpful for, for anyone. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk about temptation by asking two questions. First off, how does temptation actually work? And so for that, we're going to go to James. And then also, how can I prevent it, right? If conquering temptation is not about what I do, but what Jesus has already done, we need to get a handle on this. So I'm going to let you know, everything I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes is intensely personal. Like, this is me, because I'm in the trenches just like you are. Um, And so I offer this in hopes that you see areas of commonality, and by resonating with these things, we can walk the journey together. So first question, how does temptation work? James says it's actually in, in three stages, so let's go back. Um, take a look in, in verse 14. He says, Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed, those are the first two stages, by his own desire, and then there's something else that happens. So let's take a look at stage one, lured. You might also say interest. Right? Now this is a fishing metaphor, which I like, uh, and it's actually fishing in Greek, not just because I like it, it's actually faithful to it. Um, This is first century fishing language, so let's get down to the river on this one. So picture this. If you could imagine a trout in the stream just kind of staying in its slot as it does in the current. No disruption. And it's just right here going back and forth. But then a fly lands upstream. It's on the end of my line. And the trout just goes, you know, I'm going to move out of the slot for a little bit because I'm just... Interested. No harm done, I'm just, I'm just interested. So that's stage one is interest. Then stage two, James says lured or interested and then enticed. Now you might as well say hooked by this one because this is another fishing word, but this word also has a larger cultural use. It's used when you carry a wounded man away. That's very interesting. Someone who seems at one moment so powerless. He's hooked. Now, there's a sense in which this thing that has hooked him seems more powerless than than he is. He might flail and flop and run and dart and do everything he can to try and throw the hook, but the hook is set and he's being pulled somewhere where he doesn't really want to go. Now, before we get to stage three, I want to stop for a second because there's an important thing we understand here. There seems to be a moment in between stage one and stage two where there's a choice that's made. And I think we need to square with that. Stage one is just interested, but at some point, interest becomes something more sinister. And guys, that's true with every single kind of sin. I don't care if we're talking about lust, anger, bitterness, greed, whatever. Fill in the blank for whatever you're dealing with right now. There's a point where you choose to become not just interested, but like, I'm, I'm going to incline my heart toward this thing. And I'm going to check it out a little bit. So interested, then secondly hooked, and now the third stage of temptation, and this is the big one. Let's just call this stage three, death. And it sounds over the top, but it's exactly the word that James uses. But James kind of abruptly switches metaphors here, doesn't he? Let's take a look again. Here's what he says. He says, you're lured, enticed by your own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So he leaves fishing for something ultimately way closer to home and um, actually pretty horrifying. He's talking about birth. And what he says is he imagines that desire is something that's sleeping, unseen, deep down inside of me. It's pretty dark, isn't it? And James pictures sin as this like parasitic, self-reproducing thing inside of me. And the worst part about it, according to verse 14, is I can't blame anybody but me. This is on me. That's how temptation works. Interested, and then hooked, and then death. So that's how temptation works. How can I prevent it? What can I actually do about it? Now, before we get into this, remember we said that conquering temptation is not really about what I do, but it's about what Jesus has done for me. Pastor Micah and I were talking about uh, that even this week, and the crux of how he put it, he said, this isn't about achievement. This is about atonement. And so all of these things um, are are really applicable, but they all need to follow under the umbrella of Jesus and what he's done. And so here's where we're going to go next. If you're tired of like seeing yourself sucked into temptation after temptation and failure after failure, these next few minutes are going to be especially for you. Um, Six ways anybody can deal with temptation. And uh, so here we go. Way number one, Be made new. Be made new. And I know that sounds really strong and a little weird, but um, I want to be clear about something very basic. You don't conquer sin. You can't. You're not that strong, so give up trying. You will never have the kind of victory that your soul is designed to enjoy unless you have a relationship with Jesus. And relationship is not church attendance, right? It's not living a moral life. It's not behavior modification. It's not like doubling down and trying extra hard or putting an internet filter on your phone or or any kind of external life management. You've tried those things, and they don't work, and you know it. And they don't work because until I've let Jesus convert my heart, the rest of those things are just helpful tips to manage my personal brand. And all of those are good tactics, but they lack one thing that makes all the difference. Relationship. Conversion. This is an old word with really deep roots. Conversion starts with me saying, I can't meet my deepest need. Jesus, fix me. That's the crux of what this is talking about. In order to get the victory that your soul is designed for happens because, get this, the holy almighty God of the universe gives you a new heart. That's called conversion. And to just stop for a minute this morning, some of you listening don't have that. And like you've been attending church your whole life and you are a good person and you are trying to be a good parent and you're trying to be a good worker and you're doing your best, but there's a disconnect between what you actually want in your heart and the way that you actually live your life. And so you're stuck in these moments of saying, man, nobody would love me if they knew all the stuff that I really want, if I, what, they, what I really thought. And Jesus doesn't want you to live in that tension anymore. That's too much of a weight for you to bear. Jesus wants to close the gap between what you actually want and how you actually live. That's called discipleship. And the only way that happens for real is for Jesus to give you a new heart. That's called conversion, being made new. Conquering temptation is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And so we've got to start there first because the rest of these are just going to be helpful tips unless you got that one. Way number two, what else can you do to prevent temptation? Be intentional. Be intentional. Here's what I mean. When I read the pages of the Gospels, something strikes me. There is no such thing as an accidental disciple. Do you ever notice that? Like at no point in the history of Christianity, in any culture, in any time, on any continent, has somebody accidentally found themselves following Jesus. Discipleship must have an element of intentionality for it to be pure discipleship. Now here's why I mention that. I believe that there is a very strong temptation when you are raised in a Christian culture, um, like ours, whatever that means, to fall into this image of system of belief or discipleship that's kind of like discipleship by proxy. And it sounds like this, like if, if I'm raised by Christian parents, I grew up with Christian friends, I grew up doing Christian things, then there's a real temptation to believe that whatever that expression of Christianity is, is the same thing as discipleship, bad news. Discipleship by proxy does not exist. There is no such thing. Because discipleship is all, all about relationship and you can't have a relationship with someone unless you enjoy them, interact with them, spend time with them, and love them. I think one of the biggest challenges facing the church today is Christians doing Christian things who don't actually know Christ. Proverbs fourteen sixteen says it like this. It says, the one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. That's like going down the road at 90 miles an hour and the wise person says, all right, I'm going to put my hands on the wheel. And the foolish person says, ah, look, this is safe. I'm just going to kind of take my hands off the wheel for a while and see where this goes. Here's the problem, and you know this. People very rarely drift in a good direction. Sometimes the most reckless choice that you can make is to be well-behaved and stuck in your sin. Sometimes the most careless thing that you can do is act like a Christian but never actually know Jesus. Because if you want to deal with temptation, you've got to be intentional. Number three, be consistent. Here's something else I notice um, when walking through seasons of temptation for me. Temptation is not dealt with overnight because temptation is a war and there is no way to instantly train for warfare. Dealing with temptation is a cumulative, consistent thing that happens over time. 17th century poet, um, British poet named George Herbert, put it this way. He says, The Sundays of man's life threaded on time's string, make bracelets to adorn the wife of the eternal glorious King. Now what's that mean? He means that in part, Sundays or regular worship, regular ingestion of the word of God, feasting on Jesus in a Christ-centered way, have a function for Christians. That over time, he imagines they're like beads, threaded on time's string, that when you string them all up together, on, on their own they don't make much of a difference, but when you or string up all these ideas of worship and, and spiritual disciplines like reading the word and prayer, when you string all of that up, they become beautiful. The church, the wife of the eternal glorious king, is made more beautiful by her constancy. I don't know if you've had this experience. I have. Um, worship is one of the strongest weapons against temptation. And it's, I would say, take it one step further. It's our obligation to thread time string with as many beads and as diverse beads as we can as we are drawn into real, honest worship of our King. And so as the church, to be made more beautiful. And that is a cumulative, consistent discipline. Never overlook the cumulative effect of small obediences in your life. Number four, fourth way to prevent temptation is to be together. Be together super quick. If you are the only person who knows about your struggle, you are going to lose. There's an old Swedish proverb that says this. It says that a sorrow shared is a sorrow halved, and a joy shared is a joy double. What that means is that when you've got somebody with you, the sorrows and the pains that you bear in life seem like they're half the load because somebody is with you. And the opposite is also true. When something awesome happens in your life, and God brings blessing into your life, the joys that come with that are somehow doubled because somebody is with you. But here's the thing. There is a, there's an obstacle to being together that we all share. I have it and you have it. So let's just call it out pride. Pride is the biggest obstacle to real community. We need to look good. We need to keep appearances up. We are building, perfecting, protecting, and projecting a personal brand that says, don't get too close because I don't want you to see the real me. And so here's my word for you. Get over yourself. Crucify your need to project perfection give up the perfect manicured Christian life and let somebody in the trenches with you so you can get serious about sin. You will never be more victorious over temptation than you are connected and you will never be more connected than you are transparent. Now where do I find those people and who is it? Great question, glad you asked. You're not going to get that from 45 minutes on a Sunday morning, even in person when we meet here in this building. Singing together in a room, as much as we miss that, that's not community. Um, This fall, we're resuming our Rooted experience here at North Canton Chapel, and if you've gone through Rooted before, this is an awesome opportunity, maybe even to go through it again. This is a phenomenal opportunity to learn the basic truths about God in a safe environment, and it's an opportunity to build relationships with people here at North Canton Chapel. It's coming up this September. Don't miss it, because here's the idea behind all of this, though. No amount of programming from a church can replace personal initiative. You've gotta take the first step, and it's always risky. And so I know what that feels like, um, but have the courage to step out and be together for the sake of your holiness. Fifth way to prevent temptation. Be joyful. The way to conquer desire isn't to kill desire, but to deepen your desire. Spiritual anesthesia doesn't work. You don't become a better Christian by feeling less, but by feeling more deeply. One of the greatest misperceptions about the Christian life is that Christians are these like stoic, joyless, puritanical, stone-faced people who get through life through avoidance, saying things like, well, pleasure is bad, like, don't trust pleasure. I don't want to, uh-uh, that's not how we do this stuff. And if that's what you think, you're missing the point of James and you have missed the gospel completely. Jesus wants something more for you than that. Jesus never, ever, at, ever asks you to kill your joy. What he asks instead is for let, to let you or to let him deepen your joy. He won't ever ask you to kill it and say, stop feeling so much, stop being so, he wants to deepen it for you. And now maybe you've never heard that before, but like that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus gives you what you could never give yourself, actual meaning, actual purpose, and actual joy. John 15, 11, Jesus says this. He says, I've said these things to you so that your joy may be full. John 10, 10, it's a big verse for me. He says, I have come not just that you may have life, but that you may have it more abundant. Right? This is David in Psalm 4, 7, when he says, you've filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. And again, in Psalm 1611, where he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. What that means is that joy is not antithetical to the Christian life. It is essential. You honor Jesus most when you enjoy him best. And I watch the world flit like a butterfly from pleasure to pleasure, potential joy to potential joy. And the Christian gets to say, I have found joy, and joy has a name, and his name is Jesus. One of the most unsung confessions of the Christian life is the confession of converted joy. We cultivate joy as a weapon of spiritual warfare. So let's be joyful. Last one, and then we're gonna continue in the text. We got just a bit more to go to understand where James wants to take us. The last one is be patient. If you want to work around temptation to prevent it in your life, be patient. Here's an important point that we want to make sure we get from James. Christian maturity is not marked by how little we're being tempted, but by how little we are succumbing to temptation. And I mentioned that this morning because I know there's some of you watching and you're going, there's this little voice inside your head, and it says something like, you know, I, I gave in again. I'm still struggling with this years later. Am I even saved? Do I know Jesus? This shouldn't still be an issue for me. And pick your issue. Anger, bitterness, darkness, lust, addiction, whatever. And you say things in your head like this, I should be able to beat this. This should not be so hard. I should be done with this by now. This shouldn't have such a hold on me. Here's my word for you. Kick that should to the curb because it reflects a terrible understanding of the Christian life. Underneath that should are two assumptions that, you, that are absolutely killing you. Assumption number one, you're assuming that sin can be dealt with according to your timetable, and it can't. And most damaging, you're assuming that sin will be dealt with in your strength, and it won't. Jesus and James wants us to make sure that we see this thing correctly. Being tempted is not the issue. Succumbing to temptation is. And that's where Jesus steps up, guys. Jesus fights fights that we would never win over enemies that we could never conquer, and he secures victories that we could never achieve because he is stronger than we could ever be. But you've got to ask him. Conquering temptation is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. Now, let's get back to the trail, okay? So we spent most of our time this morning looking down the dark path. This is the scary one. Now, let's let James shift our eyes to another path. Let's pick things up again in verse 16. Here he goes. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his Creatures. Now, super quick. This is James saying, look, if you're going to walk this path, this life with Jesus path, the one with good and perfect gifts, there's two crucial details that you need to see. First, we've got to see how he describes God. Did you catch it? He says he's the father of heavenly lights, which is almost certainly a reference to his majesty as like this universe flinging, planet molding, star creating God. And then he embellishes it, doesn't he? When he says, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now you might have that great line from that old hymn, there's no shadow of turning with thee. What's that about? That's really beautiful evocative language, but what does it mean? It's pretty simple. Speaking of temptation, do you know how human you feel when you give in to temptation? Do you know how broken you feel How fragile you feel. How terribly fickle you feel when you give in. How breakable, passing, changing, and vacillating we are when we're faced with temptation. God's not like that. And that's meant to bring us security. There's no shadow of changing with him. He created planets. He's above this. Now, why does James say that? Is he trying to make us feel bad? Like, you terrible people. This wonderful God He could never relate to you. He would never condescend to you, right? Like, no. And here's the beauty of the gospel in all of its fullness. He does something here, James, that I never caught until studying for this message. And it's something super, super beautiful. He brings back the image of birth. Did you catch it? He's described God, and he has this huge view of God. And then he describes believers, those who trust in Christ. Here it is again in verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth, that's a birth image, by, word, or by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. What kind of God, who's mighty enough to create planets and spin galaxies, never changing, what kind of God would do that and still be interested in me? Faithless, fickle me. James is deliberately setting up a contrast here that we need to see this image of birth and here it is just like evil's dark purpose is for sin to be born again and again and again to your destruction god's good purpose is for you to be born again for your good and your joy and his glory remember how i said a few moments ago we talked about this necessity of being made new this idea of being converted this is why God doesn't want you to behave. He wants you to be new. We've got to get our hands around that. So many of the tensions of the Christian life would just evaporate and dissipate if we really understood that. God doesn't want you to behave. He wants you to be new. You can't talk about the great weight of temptation without talking about the greater mercy of God shown in the cross of Christ. Conquering temptation is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. Jesus, through the cross, does the heavy lifting, not me. Jesus, through the cross, converts my selfishness to selflessness. Jesus, through the cross, converts my apathy toward the hurting in my world to empathy for them. Jesus, through the cross, converts my willingness to entertain sin with a hatred or abhorrence for sin. Jesus, through the cross, converts my need to hide the truth into complete freedom. Conquering temptation is not about what I do. It's about resting, recognizing, and rejoicing in what Jesus has already done. God doesn't want me to behave. He wants me to be new. And so now, how does that happen? Where are we supposed to go with that? And so as we wrap up, um, I want to show you how simple and incredibly tough this is. This idea of being made new. It's tough because you can never do it in your own strength. And none of us would naturally find our way here. But it's simple because even a child can know Jesus. If it's helpful, think about this as an ABC. And so here's the gospel for you. What do I have to do? Well, the good news is you don't really have to do anything, Jesus has done everything for you. But what does it look like? A, admit that you're a sinner. Romans 3, 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you and me. We have to admit that we are a sinner. And if we're really honest this morning, this is not that hard to really acknowledge in myself. There's a hollowness in everyone's life that contributes to the death I see and the death that I feel. I sin because I am a sinner. That's A, admit. And then B, believe that Jesus is better you look at the gospels. That's all that is. is it's people going, here was my life, and it's going over here. I'm going to believe that Jesus is better. He is who he says he is, that I have a sin problem. I can't fix myself. I can't fix my world. All of the brokenness that presses in, I can't do a thing about it, but Jesus can. Jesus, your cross is enough because you are enough. You can make me new. That's A, B, and then last is C, to admit, to believe, and cease to commit to follow Him. A commitment is more than just like this faint sentimentality. It's not this intellectual sense of going, yeah, that that seems right. Commitment just says, Jesus, I'm yours. Take me, fix me, and use me for your purposes. Now, here's the best part about all of that. The gospel is free for you. It cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life but it's free for you. You don't have to do anything but just to receive God's gracious gift. So here's where I want to end this morning. When we look at James, I mentioned last week that James is often one of the most controversial books of the New Testament because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of gospel here. There's there's a lot of stuff where you go, man, it seems like you're just telling me to work hard, James, and, and set me up for failure, to be exasperated, to be overwhelmed, but that's not the truth. I think James even showed us this morning Like, no, look, God wants you to be born again. He wants to make you new. Would you do it? And so let's pray to that end this morning. We're going to turn our hearts back to worship. But let's bow before our King and thank Him for the cross. Let's pray. God, you are so unbelievably good to us. You've given us Jesus. You've given us freedom. You've given us a blood-stained cross That by your mercy and by your goodness, we can be made new. We can have victory over temptation and evil and sin and darkness. Not because we conquered it, but because Jesus did when he said it is finished. God, what a wonderful declaration that is. God, if we know you, for those listening this morning that claim Christ, God, help us to rest in that truth. Help us to cling and to abide in that truth. And God, if there's anybody watching this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that they would take those steps to admit, to believe, and to commit to you. Father, we love you. Bless us today in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media.